0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 96. It's titled, Five Wealth Lessons from a Stoic. I'm recording this show on the road today. L'April and I are in Panama City, Florida. We've been here over the weekend. Earlier last week, we were in New Orleans, and we'll be heading back to New Orleans Later this week, I had clients in New Orleans for well over a decade, but never brought L'April down. And so this is her first time to experience the food, the ambiance, the architecture, and we've had a great time. Now, Panama City, Florida, I had not been to. I'm here because Marriott, as you know, I've mentioned that I've owned a timeshare with Marriott, and I don't recommend owning a timeshare, particularly with Airbnb around, but we still own it. So we traded some points and here we are. The first thing you notice in Panama City is there are billboards everywhere. The town has over 300 billboards within the city limits. Now there's been a moratorium in place since 1999, but there's still, that's what you see and in the, in the, in what you notice when you look at the billboards and all along the Gulf Coast is a large percentage of them are sponsored by attorneys, personal injury attorneys, medical malpractice attorneys. I'm on a first-name basis with all the medical malpractice attorneys in the area. The other thing, though, on the billboards you see in Panama City is seafood. And there's seafood, which looks good on a billboard, which is why billboards are very, very effective. And it's why LaPril and I found ourselves at Wendy's to get a cod sandwich. And I saw the cod on the billboard and I remembered it's cod season. I, at least in, in Norway, the North Sea, the fishermen that we met off the Lofoten on the Lufthansa Islands are out fishing in the dark 12 hours a day for cod. And so we had a cod sandwich. As we were going into the restaurant, I opened the door for two elderly women. One was at least age 90, and the other must have been 80. And they had beautiful silver hair pulled back in a the bun. They were delightful. We waited behind them in line. I was curious were they going to order cod or not? Well, the 90 year old had a $10 bill, and she held it in both hands, and almost like it was a treat, and she waved it like a flag, ready to order or place her order. She ordered a four-piece set of chicken nuggets, and fries, and a soda. The attendant at the counter asked, what's your name? And she bit his head off. She said, why do you need to know my name? She wouldn't give it to him. And, and the attendant was sort of taken aback and just sort of let it drop. What well, turns out at this particularly, particular Wendy's restaurants, instead of shouting out order numbers when a customer's fru- food is ready, they would call out their name. And in a display of Southern charm, they would add the prefix. So they would say, Miss Marie, Miss Jane, your food is ready. And so LaPrile is a difficult name to, to pronounce. So I told LaPrile, just tell him your name is Wendy. And so when Miss Wendy's food was ready, we got our food. We paid for our order with the credit card. And Wendy's was willing to accept the credit card because they believe American Express will deposit the money in their account. And American Express issued us a credit card because they believe and trust we will pay them back with the money we spent at Wendy's. The Wendy's restaurant most likely has trade credit with their food suppliers, who believe the restaurant will pay them back. And probably the franchise owner has a mortgage on the building that was packaged into a bond and sold with other mortgages and sold to other investors, who those investors believe the restaurant will pay them back with interest. The 90 year old did not trust Wendy's with her name and she paid cash. Now, cash was the topic of a video by Bill Bonner that a family member posted recently on Facebook. And I'd never heard of Bill, but I watched the video anyway. Bill is really, really worried. He says there is a fatal flaw in the economic system that the US government is spending trillions of dollars to contain. He believes we are past the point of no return and that the entire system is a house of cards ready to collapse. He believes the day is coming when we will be locked out of our own bank atta- accounts. We'll be, we'll, we'll be unable to get money or cash from an ATM. He says the systemic shock will spread to the food supply, to the gasoline network, leaving store shelves and highways empty due to a lack of food and fuel. He says there will be riots. I listened to Bonner for 85 minutes because despite these dire warnings, it took him an hour to get to to the part where he revealed what the flaw was. There wasn't even a slider video. It was one of these videos where they put them on the website and there isn't no slider. You can't fast forward. Your only choice is to listen or not. And I listened because he was an engaging speaker and I was really curious what he was so worked up about. But first, he had emphasized how bad everything was going to be and how successful he had been at predicting past events and calamities, including the collapse of both the Soviet Union and the Japanese stock market. So what is the fatal flaw in an economic system that Bonner detected that will lead to collapse? It's this. There is more credit in the world... Than cash. More people out spending money at Wendy's or Wendy's borrowing money to buy their food with trade credit credit, than there is actual paper currency and coins. Bonner estimates there's only $250 billion in paper currency and coins in circulation. Now, the Federal Reserve, if you look at their balance sheet, serves much more in terms of coin and currency, I believe over a trillion dollars. But When you look at the amount of currency overseas and what Bonner calls dead money, money that's just stored away, not in circulation, he estimates there's $250 billion. And you compare that $250 to the $50 trillion of debt outstanding. So if the day comes when households and businesses want to be paid back in cold, hard cash instead of electronic digits, then the economic system could grind to a halt because there won't be enough physical money. That's what he's worried about, that suddenly there'll be such a demand for cash, real hard money, that there won't be any there. Now, he didn't talk about whether the Fed could print. And I have no idea how fast the, the Department of Graving can, or the Treasury can print dollars, but this is what he was really, really worried about. Now, I talked about this concept back in episode 84, Money is Trust. There's a summary article as well as a podcast if you go to that at moneyfortherestofus.net. And I said that when households and businesses lose faith in institutions holding their money, they demand to hold it in physical coins and bills. Or they convert those coins and bills to something they believe is a better store of value, such as gold, or silver. That is what occurred during the Great Depression. Households and businesses hoarded their physical money and were afraid to part with it. The result was the value of money went up relative to the value of goods and services, and that caused prices of those goods and services to fall in a deflationary downward spiral. That's what deflation is. The value of money increases or the value of goods and services go down because individuals Don't want to depart with their money. Now, what, so this is, this was Bonner's concern, and it is something that could happen if we lose trust in each other, we lose trust in our neighbors, we lose trust in strangers. But what is the catalyst? Now, when will that happen? And that, he's just saying it will happen, he's not saying it'll happen. In the next few weeks or the next months, but he says it's inevitable that there will be a credit crash and that everyone won't want will just will just want to hold cold hard cash here's the thing about that though you, it's not just two choices either debt grows or we get a crash. We can have a deleveraging if there is, you know, collectively concern about the amount of debt in the system, either private, corporate debt or household debt. Then it can naturally shrink without collapsing. Right now, world private domestic non-financial debt. So this would be households in businesses as a percent of nominal gross domestic product GDP which is essentially the size of the economy, a measure of the total output in terms of goods and services, is at 152.5%. That's up June 30th. Now, it just passed the high that it reached after 2007. This measure, total world private domestic non-financial debt as a percent of GDP, was 90% in 1970. It was 100% in 1980, 133% in 1990, but then it fell to 126% in 2000, and now it, is, it, it went up to 150, basically 150% in 2007, then it shrunk during the crisis, and now it's back up. This is according to data from Haver Analytics and Ned Davis. Here's the problem with a number like that. There isn't any way to know if it's too high or too low, I guess, from that from that perspective. For example, in the U.S., private non-financial debt to GDP is 148%. So it's below the world average. But it was as high, it got up to 168% in 2007 and then fell. So we've had deleveraging in the U.S. We haven't had a crash. We've had deleveraging during, right... Before the Great Depression started in the U.S., the Department of Commerce shows that U.S. private non-financial debt was 237% of GDP. And then by December 31st, 1939, it was 134%. So we had a huge deleveraging during the, the Great Depression. But we have no idea what the timing is. If we look at a different measure... Household debt as a percent of disposable income, so this is just looking at private households, and disposable income would be income less taxes. The highest in the world is Denmark, 255%. Household debt as a percent of GDP is 132%. Then we follow by Netherlands, and then Norway, then Australia. And so those countries are all... 200% 200% or almost 200% or more in terms of their household debt as a percent of disposable income. Meanwhile, the U.S. is at 100%. So is the, is the U.S. is lower than the rest of the world, but is the rest of the world too high or not? There isn't any way to know because it all comes down to trust and whether we, we believe we are going to get paid back. Bonner is prepared for this collapse. That he believes is inevitable. He is prepared because he has this off-the-grid, solar-powered cattle ranch in South America, in Argentina, that he says is at the elevation of 9,000 feet. He calls it his bolt hole, B-O-L-T. I had never heard of that phrase, but I looked it up in the Oxford Dictionary. A bolt hole is a place where you can run and hide when things get really, really bad. We saw in 2008 what happens when trust dissipates and panic and fear take hold. There were financial luminaries telling their spouses to go to the ATM and pull out cash because they weren't sure they were going to get it the next day, that the banks would be closed. And, And there isn't enough cash, I guess, if everybody wants to hold cash and trust dissipates. Now, not having cash can be a real worry. I saw that in Cuba when I thought we were going to run out of money, and I got an email from a listener, Doug, who had exactly the same experience. He went to Cuba, spent almost a fourth of his money the first day, and thought, as U.S. citizens, he'd be able to get money out of the ATM. Well, he couldn't, and they ended up sending a Western Union wired to get money, but he had a few worried days thinking they were going to run out of cash, and so it's important to have, and I talked about this in episode 84, pockets of independence. Have some cash on hand. And and Bonner talks about places to hide. He says, don't put it in a safe unless it's bolted to the ground. He talked about ho- hollowing out doors, putting in fake fixtures like fake pipes, and and have some cash, have some some food storage in case shelves do get empty, perhaps a, a financial or a just a tornado or a hurricane or something, but these pockets of independence are important. But we shouldn't spend all this time worrying about what potentially could happen. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite, and by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com David. That's NetSuite.com David. NetSuite.com David. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. And I recently, I've been reading the book, Letters from a Stoic. It's written by Seneca. Seneca was a Roman Stoic philosopher, a statement, a dramatist, a humorist. This is all according to the book of Wikipedia. He lived in, well, he was born in Spain. He was raised in Rome. He lived between 4 BC and AD 65. He was a tutor and later advisor to the Emperor Nero and later was, was forced, to at about the age of 69, to commit suicide because he was implicated, you know, at least accused, of being involved in a conspiracy to assassinate Nero. Now, here is what Seneca says. If we're all worried about a, a financial calamity or a crash, here's what Seneca wrote. There are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality, accordingly, some things torment us more than they ought, some torment us before they ought, and some torment us when they ought not torment us at all. No fear is so ruinous and so uncontrollable as panic fear. When I read that, it reminded me of the quote i I shared many episodes ago, I think it was episode six, 16 on risk. It was by Elroy Dimson, who taught at the London Business School. And he defined risk as more things can happen than will happen. And yes, one potential thing that could happen is we lose trust, people want cash, and, and we have some type of credit crunch or credit crash. It would be horrible, but that's not necessarily the most likely thing that... It, it will happen, could happen, or will happen. It's just one of those things. So, what what do we want to do? Do we want to spend our time hiding away in our bolt holes, awaiting for calamities to strike, or would we rather spend time interacting with neighbors, with strangers, trusting them? I'm an optimist. I believe the financial system will continue because we choose to trust each other. But what if you're really, really worried? What does Seneca say? Here's another quote. How am I to know if my sufferings are real or imaginary? Here is the rule of such matters. We are tormented either by things present or things to come or both. As to things present, the decision is easy. Suppose that the person enjoys freedom and health and that you do not suffer from external injury. In other words, what he's saying is, if your life is decent right now, then the present doesn't bother you and stop worrying so much about the future. He goes on to say, "...and to what may happen in the future we shall see later on. Today there is nothing wrong with it, but you may say something will happen to it. First of all, consider whether your proofs of future trouble are sure. For it is more often the case that we are troubled by our apprehensions, and we are mocked by that mocker rumor, which is want to settle wars." but most often settles individuals. Yes, my dear Lucilius, and all these letters are written to his friend Lucilius, who Seneca is mentoring. We agree too quickly with what people say. We're too quick to watch a video on Facebook and get all worried. Going on with Seneca, we do not put to test those things which cause our fear. We do not examine them. We blench and we retreat just like soldiers who are forced to abandon their camp because of a dust cloud raised by stampeding cattle or are thrown into a panic by the spreading of unauthenticated rumor. And somehow or other, it is the idle report that disturbs us most. For truth has its own definite boundaries, but that which arises from uncertainty is delivered over to guesswork and the irresponsible license of a frightened mind. That is why no fear is so ruinous and so uncontrollable as panic fear. For other fears are groundless, but the fear, this fear is witness. Let us then look carefully into the matter. It's likely that some troubles will befall us, but it is not a present fact. How often has the unexpected happened? How often has the expected never come to pass? And even though it is ordained to be what does it avail us to run out and meet our suffering? You will suffer soon enough when it arrives. So look forward, meanwhile, to better things. And what shall you gain by doing this time? Now, that, that advice is near perfect. Stop worrying about it and, and don't waste all our time worrying it. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen We should prepare for the worst. We should have pockets of independence. That's why we run a diversified portfolios. But we shouldn't spend all our time worrying about potential calamities. Seneca, and that quote, didn't really talk about the past, but we should learn from the past. And and Matt recently pointed out that I had not done a complete episode on the great financial crisis. And and that's true, I actually hadn't. And so I started reading... Too Big to Fail, the book by Andrew Ross Sorkin. And this came out in 2010. I didn't read it then because there, the the financial crisis was just just too fresh. I mean, I just felt like I just made it through and I didn't want to reread it again. But now it's been eight years. And so rereading that book and I will cover what we can learn from the great crisis, financial crisis, what happened, what it was like being in it, trying to manage money, and, and takeaways. So, But that's important to, to learn from the past, but as far as the future, we shouldn't worry so much. Seneca wrote 124 letters to Lucilius covering a wide range of topics. I've not read all of them, but those that I've read, I was looking for nuggets of wisdom in regarding investing and wealth. And I want to share five things that Seneca teaches us there are quotes that goes with each of these lessons, and I don't have time, nor it would be boring if I read all these quotes. But what, if you remember my insider's guide in the weekly free email, you would have gotten a link to a document that lists out these five wealth lessons and the associated supporting quotes from Seneca from that. If you're not a member of my ins- insider's guide, you can get this document directly. Just text the word Seneca, S-E-N-E-C-A, to the number four. 222. I'll reply with a text. You just put your email, and I'll go ahead and email that document right away. So what are the five rules? Well, the first is be content. Be content with what we have. Seneca worries that if a, it doesn't matter, he says, well, it doesn't matter how much a man has laid up in his safe or in his warehouse, how large his flocks are, how fat his dividends, if he covers, covets his neighbor's property. And, and worries about what his neighbor has and whether he has enough. and Because once, once we have, and if we keep looking for more and more and more, we're never satisfied. He says, unblessed is he who thinks himself unblessed. The second rule is live well. We don't have to live like paupers. Seneca, for, by all appearances, was, was a wealthy man. And, and he says... It is madness to avoid that which is customary and can be purchased at no great price. Philosophy calls for plain living, but not penance. In other words, we don't have to be cut back so much that we're miserable, that the food we eat is plain and what he says, disgusting and forbidden. He says he is a great man who uses earthenware dishes as if they were silver, but he is equally great who uses silver as if it were earthenware. And others don't obsess so much about wealth, but don't feel like we can't we we don't we're not worthy of the good things in life. Leads us to third, though, his third rule is away with fripperies. I love the word fripperies. What is what's that mean? Fripperies are showy or unnecessary ornament in architecture, dress, or language. And so the quote is away with fripperies that only serve for show. And and he Seneca suggests it's the superfluous things, the things that are just there for ornamentation. That's what wears our wears our togas threadbare, that forces to grow old in camp. In other words, out being a soldier to make money, that dashes upon foreign shores. That which is enough is ready to our hands, and so we have to be. Just we shouldn't keep going after more and more luxury. And that's that's a very stoic view. Be content with what we have. Have nice things. Have quality things. But don't keep going for more and more dainty fripperies. the The fourth lesson is practice non attachment. He who enjoy needs riches least enjoys riches most. And and his view of non attachment is prepare ourselves that. What would happen if we lost our wealth? In fact, he even talks about practicing being poor for a week or a day, to eat very plain food, and, and sort of toughen our spirit, is how he says it, against mishap that, that could potentially afflict us. So don't be so attached to our wealth, and, and sort of live simply so that if it was gone, we could get by. And the fifth lesson is: Don't wait until you have money to seek after the supreme good. And, and the Greeks had one definition of supreme good, and and I've talked about this in an earlier episode. And in, in their case, it was eodom, eodomania, which was this idea of blessedness or happiness or seeking after things that that just will sort of the supreme good. And and and, and in the Greeks' mind, the supreme good was was contemplation. It was knowledge. It was wisdom. But we can define our own supreme good the way we want. Stoicism defined the supreme good as an honorable life or moral virtue, living a a good life, an honorable life. And but but the the idea. But he also equated it to. To philosophy, but the idea is, and I remember struggling this with in graduate school, where I was getting my MBA, but I was spending way more time reading ancient Greek and just spending time learning as much as I can in the library. And I thought, what a waste if I just go and first try to make a bunch of money, and then I can spend my time contemplating these things. And that's exactly what Seneca says not to do. We should we should focus now on learning and growth and, and you know my, my words would be live like you're already retired. Structure a life now that you can sustain and brings joy for decades ahead. Don't focus on I'm gonna earn my money now and and then I'm gonna do the the interesting thing, this the supreme goods. He says, Why of your own accord postpone your real life to the distant future? Shall you wait for some interest to fall due, or for some income on your merchandise, or for a place in the will of some wealthy old man, when you can be rich and now? Wisdom offers wealth in ready money and pays it over to those in whose eyes she has made wealth superfluous. So that's Seneca, five investment rules. You can get those, text the word Seneca to the number four. four. 222. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. So after listening to Bill Bonner for an hour and 25 minutes, I actually bought what he was trying to sell me for, I, I bought the Bonner letter for a year. And because I thought, oh, I listened to him for that long, I'm going to see what else he has to say, and then I'll, then I'll cancel it. I often get emails from individuals that are sort of agonizing whether they should join the Money for the Rest of Us Hub or not. And and the agony almost seems like, is this a lifelong commitment? It's not. If you want to try out the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, you can join for a month and cancel. It's $19.95. You can sign up for a year, and if you don't like it after 30 days... You get your money back. Just let me know. This is not a high-pressure sales situation. If you would like some additional asset allocation guidance, some additional education on money investing, some, some model allocation, some focus on smart beta, if you'd like to see what my current portfolio is, if you just want additional premium podcasts on a weekly basis, you can get that by becoming a member of uh, the Money for the Rest of Us hub. And you can get information, money for the rest of us hub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. General education, money, invest in the economy. Have a great week.